Welcome to the Mere and Powerful Podcast, where we believe in going far by going together. Hi guys, my name is Rebecca Pape. I'm Mir's co-founder, served as director of impact for a couple of years, and some consider me to be Brian's better half. Brian, Charlie, and I recently sat down with Mir's partner and Splash's founder and executive director, Eric Stowe. In 2007, Eric founded one of the most respected organizations in the water, sanitation, and hygiene world. Today, Splash provides clean water to more than 400,000 kids in eight countries and supports hygiene education at over 500 sites. Mir has supported their projects in India, Nepal, China, and Ethiopia, impacting over 8,000 people, primarily children. It's been a pleasure working with Splash and knowing Eric. Listen in as we discuss business practices, Splash's accomplishments, and the future of clean water. Hope you enjoy. Are you ready to sweat? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the room temperature, because we're grilled. No, we're not, we're not <laughs> I was talking to someone this morning. I was meeting with someone around, or just around the topic of impact investing. And I realized I was totally sweating. We're in this coffee shop. And I was seeing it. it. It made it look like, a, I don't know. Like I was worried about. <laughs> made it look like you were nervous. If she was going to invest or hide or not. something. So I just, yeah. <laughs> and I'd already been in there for an hour before she got there. So I looked like I was really nervous. <laughs> <laughs> I told her right off the front, we're not looking for anything. Yeah. Nice. I heard about your trip. Yes, it was fantastic. Have you been to Asia? Yeah, well, well of course. Out, have you been outside of China? Uh, yeah, many times. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> Japan, only a handful though. Okay. So, not many. And I, you went to yeah, Korea I mean, as well, I, yeah. Yeah, I we guess that was a dumb away. question now that I'm thinking about it. Right. too short. <laughs> Everywhere you were. You got a lot of... You can blame it on the pregnancy. Yeah, no, totally. <laughs> blame it on the fact you got a lot of partners doing killer stuff. Yeah, I don't expect anyone's yeah. keeping track of my logs. Pins on the map. Yeah. Um, cool. Well, it's the whole um, purpose of the podcast is literally just us sitting down with our partners, you, um, as well as Water First and other people that we interact with, but then also highlighting, we also highlight customers like Blue Bottle and awesome. Patagonia and Stumptown and all these other customers. And so just kind of providing a lens for our customers to kind of hear behind the scenes about who these people are, what they do, <laughs> where things started from. So it's sure. kind of like a mini how I built this in some parts where we get to hear from you on your story. Yeah. And, um, Still trying to figure that out. Yeah. Are we all? <laughs> it evol- It's an evolving process. Isn't that crazy though? Yeah. Every year, I think I've got it dialed in. It's like, oh, I missed that 10%. I missed yeah. that 10%. <laughs> yep. Or you're like, oh, man, everyone's like, got to figure it out. And so we're like, what's my role here? Like, what do I do? And you're like, do you not know what you do here? You're supposed to do that thing with the stuff. And they're like, yeah, but I could be doing this. You're like, I go do that. <laughs> yeah. How much does Mir, is this allowed to be free-flowing? Yeah. yeah How just, much yeah. does Mir ascribe to kind of the, the get the right people on the bus rather than get the right people in the right positions? We're still like, well, I think we're moving this quarter, like this quarter of the year to like right people in the right seats. I think the first, well, it's kind of ebbed and flowed where it's just like, can we even afford to hire someone to get on the bus? (laughs) (laughs) And then we got to, uh, then we got to like maybe 10 employees and that was kind of, then it was like, all right, what's everybody doing? And then now it's, um, yeah, now we're up to like 40, 45 Mm. in the store. And so it's kind of a shuffling of like, oh yeah, you're on the second row. Well, actually maybe you should be like on the fifth row for a little bit. And then like here you're on the right side of the bus, but actually you need to be on the left side of the bus because mm. the business is evolving in a way that like you need to, we need to like evenly distribute out the weight. And so it's, I don't know, would you agree? Well, I mean, it feels like 
job descriptions and like roles and responsibilities are more defined than they've ever been, but there's still, everyone is still evolving mm. within their own role. And, and yeah, there's still instances where it makes more sense for someone to be, you know, and you probably see this too. Like you recognize a talent in someone or discover something about someone that you didn't hire them for, but would serve the company well. And so, um, we've had that happen a couple of times as well, which yeah. is exciting because yeah. then we're really putting everybody to work in, in areas where they are, can be high performers. So. Yeah, that's just the scary part, though. I think of, of CEO or ED, like spotlighting talent, like, then you've got to maneuver it in such a way where that person can escalate, where there's a new trajectory, but it really needs to be from their direct line manager. So it just, it just it's a lot more complex than it used to be. It used to be like, totally. you are incredible. Yep. Let's do this. And yeah. now it, it takes multiple layers and multiple conversations to, to convince everybody that that should be And then so. resource planning behind it too. Like I think Charlie's a good example where I think in February or January. You're the perfect example. Yeah, Charlie's <laughs> a great example of this where it was where we're like, Charlie's a star performer at Mirror, like crushing it on the customer service side. And Charlie went to school for nonprofit management. So you mm. know, a, a typical pathway would be, you know, Charlie's obviously wants to do more than customer service. And so... We're like, okay, well, what's Beck's plan? You know, is she going to be an impact forever or not? And then Beck is now pregnant. And so we, you know, Beck's kind of like, she's done everything from like accounting to impact um, grant making to potentially heading down the copyright writing role in the marketing department. So yeah. then we kind of said, hey, Charlie, at some point, you know, this may open up. We'd love to see you like kind of thrive in this role. It opened up and then we elevated Charlie to that position. But then it's then you have to like backfill Charlie's position and like find the customer service and cross train. And then like, mm. like in my head, I never think about cross training. I'm always like, Oh yeah, you're starting June one. Cool. Uh, let's start customer service June one. It's like, Oh, we yeah. gotta, <laughs> you actually have to like spend some time cross training. Yeah. The overlap. Yep. I love for, at some point in this partnership, we should have something where mere staff come and, sit in train work with splash and splash staff com. i i get that for your bottom line that would that would be a, a hit but a hit in a negative sense um <laughs> it would be it'd be huge for us some of our staff who have not had exposure like this to just spend a day and understand how the office functions and how the conversations flow and yeah. how the negotiations happen and all that i think it'd be really beneficial for the for-profit non-profit well and vice versa other. for our team to like work remotely would, in your well, office love it I th- you know, it's funny, too, because I think when you grow a business or a nonprofit, you get stuck in your own, like, processes. And you're like, why do we have a leadership team meeting every week? Like, what do we say? Like, sure. you know, and, like, and, then you t- and then you reach out to your friends. You're like, hey, what do you touch base on every week? And they're like, oh, it's a, it's a departmental update or it's a problem-solving exercise or attention exercise. And so seeing how other people do it is really, I think, helpful. But for us, we suffer from that myopia where we do stay traditionally in the wash sector when we try and understand how organizations function then maybe stretch it out a little bit to public health and then possibly beyond to NGO, but very infrequently, if at all, do we actually understand how a for-profit would function and mm-hmm. how they stay lean and hungry. Come on over. And ferocious. <laughs> well, and culture, we're talking about company culture a ton, and that yes. is something every organization, nonprofit or not, you know, God, how has would we do on. something like that? Not even just mm-hmm. the two of us, but how would we do something like that? Or functionally trying to learn from each other effectively i'll let you lead the conversation i've got so many questions about how the business is run here i think both sides would be a little bit surprised about how how many similarities there are 
rather than surprised at sure. how different things go. Totally. Um, yeah, I, uh, I know you know Peter Drury. He's one of my favorite professors in the program I had. <laughs> I well, know him very well. well. Splash, but he... I've heard his name twice today. It's really, really funny. Yeah, so that happens with Peter. <laughs> so the most well-networked person you live in. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that he uh, kind of tried to <laughs> hammer into us was that there's obviously huge differences how you're going about getting capital and that kind of thing, fundraising side of stuff, but that people think there's like this massive chasm that can't be bridged because, sure. you know, there's two different sectors. They're, they're just money hungry or they're, they just like have yeah. their hands out, like that kind of thing. It's like, no, developing a company culture, developing the people within your team sure. uh, and then focusing on your mission, like all of these things, it's, it's the same in a lot of ways. It's just the, the little nuances, important nuances, obviously, but yeah. are, are, are there, but it's, it's not as different as people think all the time. I agree. Even jurisdictions are a little different, but I bet the composition of the relative teams or respective yeah. teams isn't all that different. Probably. It'd be interesting solid. to take someone like you, Charlie, and, and implant you to Splash for like a week and just like shadow Eric or, or, or somebody <laughs> over there and just like, take, yeah, perfect. <laughs> and then I don't know who you'd want, you know, from your organization to come over and just kind of observe and then awesome. maybe have like a afternoon barbecue presentation or whatever where we just kind of explain like, key learnings or differences or things that are cool because even someone reflecting mm. on your organization you might not even know that like something that you do is really cool and like you get that encouragement from somebody outside of the organization where it's like oh my gosh you should have seen it like mm. everybody worked really cool across like people just like got up and talked to one another i mean that's a weird example sure. but like maybe some organization doesn't sure. do that because of mm. walls literally like actual walls you know yeah. or i don't know it could be cool to like figure something out where there's this like connectivity and we could end it all with a kickball game. It would have to be company we, against company. I'm just oh, saying. Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We got a lot of pride in our sports. Yeah, we're yeah. big enough now. We could actually, yeah. Although now, I'm, just so you know, before I leave today, I'm supposed to make sure that everybody is aware that we are doing the Tough Mudder in September and that we'd love it to be joint. Yeah, yeah. Ooh. We're looking for minimum 30 people total. I did so. get that email. I think Jessica's sending you that I through will, the company. Are you doing it? I will year. watch from the sidelines. I do, <laughs> I do five or six a year. Yeah. Really? Yeah, I love it. Um, I love it. Have you done Spartan races? Yeah. Do you, which ones do you like better? Uh, the Beast the, is the best. Is yeah. that the Spartan one? That's the longer version. Okay. So there's the... So I'm super geeky on this. Yeah, yeah. No, <laughs> there's a Sprint, there's a Super, and then there's a Beast. Okay. And the Beast is the 15 with about 40 obstacles. I love it. Joe I've, got, is I've crazy. got one coming in August, three in September, and uh, another one probably. <laughs> and I've already done two this year. My family just did one together. <laughs> it was a mini, it was a mini one. But my family just did one all together. Um, the Beast? No, no. It was a Spartan. Oh. It was um, terrain racing. It was it was entry level, but it was fun. Oh, cool. oh man, watching my kids kill it was just oh, awesome. <laughs> All right, awesome. I'm gonna rally the troops. Really we're, gonna cool. do, we're gonna do the tough mudder. My son's never been able to do a monkey bar in his life. He's he's lean and tall like me, and there's a four foot pool of just ice cold mud water. He made it all the way across. He did not fall. <laughs> he's it like, was nope. awesome. <laughs> no, I, I actually we started it as a company. We did 100 uh, percent of the Seattle staff did a tough mudder, the full tough mudder. Or most of the staff did a half, and then the rest of us did the full. But we did a Tough Mudder two years ago, 100% participation, and I've been completely addicted since. I love it. I love it. I train four nights a week on it. What's training entail? Like running or are you like no, just running the park? Making sure the you're like you're, well, yeah. I mean, just a lot of that. <laughs> like tonight I'm going to do trail running, but just a lot of just making sure your stabilizer muscles are working. It's not traditional lifting because that doesn't get yeah. you many places when you're trying to yeah. find a rope and reach <laughs> over to this bar. And totally. So it's just, it's, it's odd training. 
I'm not. We're not. I'm not competitive at all about. It. I just have so much fun. <laughs> so much fun. That's, That's awesome. Anyway, all right. We're so doing we're it. looking at as a as a team. That'd be great. That's and really we cool. We have a culture yeah. club now, yeah. so we can reach out to the culture club. Yeah, we actually formed a culture club to help like kickstart some of these things. All I hear in my head is culture club singing, so I just don't. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I love it. Um, we. Um, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, speaking of like growth and companies, I mean, that's one of the hardest part is getting people, like the right people on the bus. And I think if you look over the past year, the people that are no longer at the company, it's just they didn't add. So like we're reframing like does someone fit in the culture instead of instead of asking that being like, do they add to the culture? Because um, that's I think you're not going to get diversity if you add someone. Or how can they expand? Our, yeah, they our expand it, culture. not just like add, like fit in. You know, mm-hmm. first I was like, oh, we got to make sure they fit within the organization and the fit is to make sure that they can function within a fast-paced startup, you know, not a ton of lanes or, like, bumpers, so to speak. And I don't think a lot of, you know, people like the idea of a startup, but sometimes they get in there and they need way more direction than we can give. So that's, like, the biggest checkpoint. And then from there, it's like, how do we actually get them to expand the culture? But Culture Club, I think, is helping that because actually, like, are organizing events and we are seeing people participate Hmm. outside of work and just do it, like, next week. A bunch of people are going hiking at 5.30 in the morning and... I'm going. We'll see. I'm going to get out of bed. It's great. We don't have it formalized that way, but we do have we do have usually monthly or every other month events. That's right. Something that the whole team can rally around and or opt out of. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They feel. Right. Yeah. They might not be employed in the next month. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah right. um, cool. Well, I'd love to just hear, you know, I'm sure you've told it a million times, but we'd love to kind of start off and just hear how you came into starting Splash from like, where did this passion come from to, to help serve people around the world with clean water and sanitation? Sure. Um, a nice, easy softball question. Yeah, no, I, I just, I, <laughs> as you said, you've said it so many times, right? You try and figure out what the nuggets are that yeah. are most applicable and appropriate. Uh, I think just going back, um, huge social justice guy took part in a lot of um the protests here in seattle in the in the 90s heavy in wto protest heavy in labor rights movements were you in that photo by starbucks Um, no i have never never part of that but really really (laughs) focusing on labor rights so i actually um, my undergrad was paid for by the longshore union here in seattle um surprisingly and then uh did my uh, undergrad in china studies uh, my grad school here in Seattle at UW um, in China studies focused on labor rights movements in China. So I was going to be, I, I had planned to and really desired to uh, live in China, work in China, and just study that that wow. portion of, a, of one of the most yeah. amazing cultures ever, right? Yeah. Um, what happens when you have this dismantling of the social safety nets from you know, a communist regime into a capitalist one? Yeah. And what happens to those workers? What happens to that workforce? What happens to their kids who are promised you know, yeah. this golden future? Uh, so took a job um, in D.C. doing factory monitoring, which would have me going into uh, Guangdong province and looking at factories, making sure that they were complying with international regulations. So about a month before I was to leave, um, I got a call from uh, this company in Tacoma saying, you know, we've got adoptive families who are going to China and there's 14 families. We hear that your Chinese is proficient. It, it was at the time. It's completely, what? completely non-existent. Now. No it's very embarrassing. <laughs> um, but would you be willing to go and do translation work? Because we lost our translator. Free trip to China. I still not, I haven't moved to DC yet. So it was November, I think, 02. Um, 
And I went on this trip with 14 families, had no clue anything about adoption, <laughs> no clue what these families are going through, the kind of struggle and strain and just tireless advocacy they, they went through just to get to that moment to adopt. Um, so I wasn't really cognizant of that, but I'm, I'm, I'm there in this hotel room translating for this orphanage uh, director who has these screaming, 14 screaming kids in the back, these 28 parents and sometimes their siblings and sometimes even their parents and their other kids. I mean, it was a massive troop wow. of people. And I'm translating between the two um, and I'm watching these parents. It gives me the chills. I'm watching these parents unite with these kids who, who had been abandoned, who were living in an orphanage. Uh, most of them were anywhere from six to 10 months of age. And watching that moment of unification, watching these parents hold their kids and just weeping. It was phenomenal. It was phenomenal. Yeah, wow. So that night, called my, my wife and said, I, I, I'm not going to take the job in D.C. And then called <laughs> my future boss and said, I know that you don't really know anything about me. You sent me on this trip, but I, I will work for you. So give it a year, give it six months, whatever, and I'll convince you of my worth. Um, and that was a start. So I, I worked in international adoption for almost six years. And so I would accompany families to different countries, China, Nepal, Panama, Vietnam, um, all over the place. And during the day when families would be um, acclimating to their kids and vice versa, I would be in an orphanage. So I'd spend a day in an orphanage and every trip was a different orphanage. And sometimes during a single trip, multiple. And at night I'd be with the families and there was this, there was this real pivotal moment in 03 when it's like, I'm in an orphanage, there's tons of sick kids like you know two three kids per crib one baby gets sick from diarrhea it just spreads like wildfire across the orphanage then i'd go back to the hotel with the parents and everybody's got safe water everybody's got clean food everybody's got clean sheets etc but it was the water that was the primary kind of catalyst for a lot of these kids getting sick and so um spent a lot of that year trying to reconcile how can an orphanage in the same town if not at least the same province have unsafe water, but these hotels and restaurants and coffee shops that I'm taking these parents to, how can they have it? Mm. And so um, spent that year and several years after trying to, to reconcile that very question. Like how does a, a chain like Starbucks or McDonald's or even Burger King, right? You yeah. question their food all day long, but they will never have unsafe water. <laughs> how could you leverage what they've already built in these economies and repurpose it for a place like an orphanage? So- um, And what year was that? That was 03. Okay. That was the first year that I, I paid someone at the front end of a McDonald's late at night. Again, my Chinese was really good then. <laughs> so I, I paid them, I think it was like 60 renminbi, um, which at the time was not, not indecent. Um, can you let me into the back so I can see what water purification equipment you have? Get in the back, take down the parts numbers, and when I get home, I call the manufacturer and say, hey, listen, I was in China. I saw that you're working here at Starbucks or Burger King. KFC has great water purification equipment. Um, and then eventually landed on the manufacturer that works with McDonald's, uh, broker to deal with them. And now 12 years later, we're still working with them, but I'm, I'm walking all around your question. Uh, the straightforward way is, uh, social justice background really spent a lot of time in a lot of orphanages, seeing that there was something that you could do in the immediate term that would have health impacts, but that it would also have long-term resonance for these kids development. And so by the time we hit 2006, uh, I was starting to think about um, places beyond orphanages. So there's also high populations of really vulnerable kids in feeding centers and street shelters and rescue homes for trafficked women and children uh, and in schools. And so that's how Splash launched in 2007 was all of those things. 
healthcare facilities, shelters, schools, uh, and orphanages was really the, the four legs of that table. Um, yeah, wow. so that's that, that's the abbreviated truncated yeah. version, but it was a lot of time with a lot of, of amazing, amazing kids and seeing that just the introduction of safe water it was so medicinal. Yeah. Well, I mean, in China, we work in China a lot, and it's a communist country still. Um, how, why do you think the government, do they just not care? They didn't know about it? Why do you think it was an issue in the orphanages? And I think it's that's a great question, and it could apply to any of the places we work. Um, when they built the orphanages, when I used to work in, in that field, um, so there's a couple things. When I started, say, an orphanage that could house maybe 30 kids had 70 to 80. Now there's orphanages that could hold 300 and they only have 20 kids. It's a very, very weird paradigm shift that's happened in the last 10 years. Um, but the earlier orphanages, they just didn't have the infrastructure. They didn't have enough toilets. They didn't have enough water volume. They certainly didn't have any clean water coming in. And that's mostly to do with the city. It's not the orphanage itself. Yeah. Like you're just taking the water that you have. Um, but now the Chinese government has poured in a ton of money over the last five years, especially to rebuild and reimagine what it looks like to be an orphanage or an orphan in a Chinese orphanage, mm. um, if that makes sense. It's, yeah. it's a it's a major multi-million dollar campaign by the Chinese government to build these, I won't call them incredible homes or still orphanages, but they're, they're radically different than they used to be. They have pediatric rehabilitative care units. They have really specialized care. They house the elderly um, adjacent to um, abandoned orphans so that you've got kind of bookend of life communities together. It's just... They've done a, a really impressive job with a problem that's self-made, though. Yeah. How, how do you think the orphanages are? Is it what's, is it the policy? Why are there orphanages? Yeah. The one-child policy certainly created most of it because 95% of all the kids I ever met in China in an orphanage were girls, really? unless you were in the special needs room where there were mm -hmm. physical debilitations. Um, and there's an equal gender split. Yeah. But if it was just abandonment, outright abandonment uh, of a non-special needs child, 95% were girls. Yeah, it's, and now, the original vision of Splash was to be in every orphanage in China. Um, we're finally there, which is great. It's over 1,100 orphanages across 1,000 cities. Uh, and what is more, we're really excited about is in the next two years, we believe Splash China office will be able to spin off on their own and be a fully financially independent and autonomous unit of Splash. Incredible. Yeah. And with the huge, Chinese government yeah. supporting them. And that's a huge reason why we partner with you. Yeah. Uh, it was obviously that, that piece of it. So fi in 15 years, you have now provided clean water to 1,100 orphanages across China? Well, the original was with this other company, um, and we had to end up going back and fixing those. That was part of part of why I started Splash as well, is really yeah. understanding that NGOs traditionally go in and there's this um, donor plaque mentality that's really great <laughs> to put something up on the wall, really great to get your name out there, but making sure that that thing sustains is very anathema for the NGO sector. Yeah. So a lot of Splash's first three years was going back and repairing things that we weren't allowed to fix originally, if that makes sense. Yeah. It, was, it, yeah. was a, it was a really hard decision to leave that sector, but yeah, a lot of it was just because the, it was traditional NGO churn. Yeah. Get things out there, get the money coming in, Walk do the inauguration and yeah. cut the ribbon, and then keep moving. And I was like, well, no, those, yeah, those like, sites actually need maintenance and service and support and nurturing. Totally. totally. And that's, the harder, that's by far the hardest thing of what we do now. Like Clean water is incredibly easy in comparison to trying to make sure that the communities that we work with actually are supported. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, 
I'm still like blown away every time I talk about Splash. I'm like, no, no, you don't understand. Like they they started in like 2003 and now they have 100% coverage of orphanages in China. Like this just I, I'm like impressed. I, <laughs> I, like that's just unbelievable it's to me. It's impressive. Um, and that's that's, I mean, I, I maybe that's one of our unique differentiators is the 100% model, and it's hard to get. And in some places, we'll never achieve it. We say 100%, and that's what we're striving for, but we may never achieve it. Yeah. Population growth may, you know, for if, if we're fundraising now for, say, 1,600 schools in Kolkata, because that's 100%, by the time we hit that, there's an additional 30%. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, or there's some outliers that just won't work with us or won't work with NGOs, et cetera. So we may never hit it. But the aspirational goal always to us has been 100%. And once you achieve it, um, the secondary goal is to hand over ownership to the local country offices and support them to spin off to be locally independent, which is way harder than <laughs> 100% coverage. Yeah, but I mean, 100% coverage, like, I feel like most NGOs or nonprofits out there have these lofty goals and they're great and they're noble. And yet it's constantly moving because, you know, technology changes or the problem changes. But this is like you set out for a goal, you've achieved it, and now you're moving on to the next thing of like actually passing it off to the team in China. Try it. And Cambodia. Cambodia should be spinning off uh, in mid-2019. should be financially independent. That's so cool. Yeah, it's That's scary so and cool. fun and exciting <laughs> and all those things. And yeah. uh, We need to understand how to capture that. Do you feel like personally you've been able to stop and reflect on yeah. achieving the goal? Not even a bit. I, even the day we hit 100% coverage in China, um, attention shifted in a new direction. Okay, great. Now the next phase is going to be very hard, getting the government to fund, getting the agreements in place, getting our staff prepared for that exit by us. But then the focus was, okay, now it's 100% coverage in Kathmandu. Oh, it's 100% coverage in Kolkata. Oh, it's 100% coverage in Addis. So you don't slow down. <laughs> um, as you don't either, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you probably take a couple minutes um, yeah. to relish in the new product that, that actually succeeded, but I doubt you take much longer than that, right? Very, very little. We need a, we need a 100% party. We're going to throw us party for Splash, 100% um, party. Yeah. <laughs> we need to celebrate this. Yeah, the funny thing is we basically said, let's let's throw it spring of 2019. <laughs> it's a year, a year and several months later, we just... Yeah. That's as, no. Yeah, we, that's as soon as we could think of actually trying to put energy into that. We've got a store. We have beer on tap. Like, I feel like we should host. Well, we want to do it for the Chinese party. government. Yeah, yeah, that'd be uh, incredible. That's that's our goal is to make sure that they're they're relishing this, and it's the Chinese staff that are seen as the spotlight mm. kind of instruments to get them there. Not Splash International, but it's the local. It's always been our push is that it, you have to look at isolate and illustrate the local lo- local success, not the international kind of push or engine. That's incredible. So two thousand three, two thousand seven was the start of Splash. Two thousand three was really the launch of just the idea of engaging in water. Yeah. So when you launch no it, you have no water background. Well, you have, you have, you have a very um, compassionate background via workers' rights. Um, so 2007, how did you, like, what was the, like, how did you start Splash? Like, were you just, you had some money in the bank account, you had some friends, like, how, like, people always I ask me, no like, how did you start, yeah, how did you, how did you get um, it going? I was, <laughs> was making 32000 a year uh, at this other job. And so I stayed on at that job for the full year of 2007. So I wrote this manifesto in 2006, it's like this four-page scribe of all the things that an NGO shouldn't be. What's wonderful is when I revisit it annually, Splash is holding pretty true to line of sight. Like, we've said no to more things than we've said yes to. And we stayed very, very true to that core mission, um, which I'm surprised by, right? 11 years later, we're still holding true. Um, But I wrote this in 2006 and 2007 to launch. I had enough money to rent an office that was, it was 
well smaller than this. Um, and that was probably by summer of that first year. The first six months I was out of my closet, literally had converted my closet <laughs> and put a little desk shelf in there. Um, and I would be at the adoption agency during the day and work at Splash at night. Took no salary that first year and just focus on trying to secure the funding and support, refine the model, articulate the, the vision, etc. Um, but what it meant is I had a one and a half year old at home um, who wasn't healthy. Uh, I was traveling every month for a week, if not two, for the other job. And I was traveling a month or a week every month for Splash concurrently. It was, I mean, my wife and I, we don't joke about it. We actually have fully repressed that first year. Like I can see pictures of that of 2007 and I kind of remember that shirt. Don't remember the event. And I'm, my memory's pretty sound in other years across the world. Yeah, that first year is, is, a, is blank. Sounds like a blur. Yeah. So you... I quit the other job in um, October or November of that year and then started taking a salary from Splash. In 2008? Uh, 2000, end of 2007, I started taking a salary. Okay. Because we had hit enough um, enough funders at that point to start doing projects. But I didn't have my first staff person until 2010. So yeah, three so years. So all grant just... writing, all grant yeah. reporting, website design, photography, videography. Everything. None of it was great because I was doing all of it. <laughs> like, right? I mean, we ended up being yeah. able to fortunately hire um, people way smarter and far more talented than I. But man, those first three years, like, if you look at the branding, it's pretty bad, man. I'm right there with you, man. First couple years of me, you're like, whoa, yeah. that thing? You, I mean, you whoa. remember it yeah. intimately, right? Yeah, you're doing, you're doing everything. You're doing every position yep. within the organization. Yeah. What kept you going? What was that driving force? Um, there were some early hits. Um, those first few months that, that gave me some faith that actually we'd see the, you know, the kind of break-even state to be able to do this work beyond just one project at a time, uh, a ton of interest from people, like, right? Kids in clean water, it makes a whole heck of a lot of sense. Yeah. And then kids clean water in orphanages, schools, pediatric centers and shelters. It's, it's, it's just an easy fit. Yeah. Um, and the model is so bulletproof. Yeah. <sighs> I mean, the, you must have really. We have Kevlar vests, but I don't know if it's bulletproof. <laughs> like, um, but there's some seams in those vests that don't withstand the shock of a bullet. Uh, it, man, the model itself has changed quite a bit. Like how we deploy. Like we didn't do hygiene originally. We didn't do sanitation originally. Um, we didn't do behavior change originally. It was all about clean water, and then we saw in very short order that things would tumble and start to crack if in fact we didn't do those things. If kids weren't washing their hands, basically negated the, the health impact if they only had safe water. If kids didn't have a safe uh, and private toilet, in fact, you could negate kids wouldn't start to come to school. If you weren't focused on behavior change, then kids wouldn't adopt these things at home. And so there's, it's just this cascading rollout of, of what we've done, but it's it all is an extension of the original mission. Did for sure. Did you see when you were going out that first year, or even first three years, that donors, funders, and that were they? Did you see people hungry for, say, like you had your manifesto? This is what should not be the goal. It, it was you explaining to no, folks. No, and I, I think there's so many things that I'm really, really inspired by in general. So, wash sector in particular, but NGO sector in general, um, there is now an appetite for urban. There was no appetite for urban when we started. Mm -hmm. It was like, yeah. why in the hell would you work in cities? Cities have clean waters. There yeah. is no need. And I mean, that was across the board. Every major donor in the water sector that we came to, no need. Rural is where it's at. 
there's truth in that. There's a ton of need in rural, but there's also a requisite need in urban that, that now people are starting to see. Um, people are no longer talking about kind of brownie sale, um, small one-off projects. They're talking about systems change and how do you get government co-funding and how do you make sure that local communities own these projects and on and on. That wasn't existent 10 years ago. If it was, it was, it was on the periphery at best. Mm. Um, so there's a lot of conversations that have boiled up since then that I think we were tracking towards early on. But, yeah. I always like to give a little bit of context to when things started. So 2007, yeah. Facebook doesn't, ex- I mean, it just starts, you know. Well, actually, I think it started um, actually getting outside of just like a few universities, 2008. Or no, sorry, 2000, no, it was 2003. So you're just coming into like Facebook Prime, sorry. So like Facebook's coming in. How do you get? How did you get the word out back there? Was it literally just like picking up the phone, networking, like old school networking? I still cold call more than you know, <laughs> really. And yeah. if if there's a crucial conversation, I always ask if we can do it on the phone. It's yep. just it's there's far less room for error. Yeah, yeah. Um, or even or in person. How important is in person to you for? I, I love it. Yeah, I love it. I mean, yeah. I, I the first few years it was you know do. You, Give me the names of three to five people who you think could advance us or challenge me or just kick my butt in general. Yeah. Um, and from those, seeding out a, a much larger network. But yeah, those first years were all networking. Welcoming that feedback or yeah. constructive criticism. And now I'm finally starting getting getting back into that zone. We've got the we've got just such insanely talented, competent folks um, that I can focus now on on relationship building and networking and having people strength test the model and yeah. poke holes in it and say, oh, that's where it's going to fall apart. And for the past, you know, for a few years there in the middle between 2010 and probably 2016, we just, I didn't have that luxury. Yeah. Because you're still doing a lot of different hats. I was the and, program yeah. director until 20 end of um, 2016. Okay. It was terribly inefficient. <laughs> really? Yeah. I mean, you can't run an organization and I'll also be one of the direct managers. Yeah, it's difficult to manage, lead, and then go out and sell and do everything else. Yeah. But hats off to you to actually seeking criticism. I think that's the hardest part as leading an organization is to like welcome that feedback or criticism from people with internally or externally as well. But it sounds like you were actually going and asking for people to poke holes in the model. Yeah, the first years we would take engineers with us. Um, actually, everybody was volunteer-based. So uh, we didn't have uh, international kind of shipping agreements or anything of that sort. So we would take... Uh, everybody was assigned two cases. They were all 72 pounds. They were all military-grade plastic <laughs> cases. They would have the water filtration systems in them, all the plumbing, all the tools. I had my hammer drill, everything. We would take everything <laughs> across the world with us. I mean, it's so bad, right? We would take everything with us. So the more volunteers we had, the more projects we could do. I mean, we usually did 10 projects a trip. So I would have anywhere from 8 to 16 volunteers with me. All of them carrying these cases. I was like, what you can wear is what you can take on the plane. You can have one backpack with your clothes. <laughs> Everything else is equipment. You think about that. But yeah. when we would get back from the trip, it was, don't tell me anything about what we did right. What did we do wrong? Where could we have been leaner? How could we have done this better? How could we just be a better organization in general? And I think that ethos has really lived on in Splash. Like asking for critiques more than asking for praise. Podcast listeners, the world is full of color and we're telling stories about it. Stories of people and places we've encountered on our journey of empowering people for a better future as a brand. 
Today, head to mirror.com, order $60 worth of product and get $10 off. Use the discount code PODCOLOR at checkout. That's P-O-D-C-O-L-O-R, all one word. You do not want to miss out on these colors. There are six. There's at least one shade for you, one hue for you. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. Yeah, and I I mean, that's. do you feel like that's led to where you are now as far as maybe you don't see it this way, but from what we see on our end as far as being a very publicly facing or consumer-facing brand, we get hit up all the time with people who want us to fund their clean water projects Mm. and we hold them to your standard of what you have done. So while you Mm. might not see it, do you feel like that's led to like the standards that you have internally as far as like figuring out how bulletproof you can make it or just tweaking the model? Yeah, I think some of the staff we've had have been surprised at how honest we are in conversations with donors. Like this is where I think we're excellent here. I think we're really good here. I think we're incredibly weak at this, you know, say it's early stage sanitation. This is where we are weak but this is actually where we want you to fund us so we can accelerate that. But then when they start dialing in about where we're, you know, where we're missing some of our strengths, we're incredibly open and honest about it. And I think that's, sadly, I think that's uncommon in the sector at large, especially in the wash sector. Because if, if something has failed, you just don't highlight that. You don't lead with that, right? Yeah, but in yeah. most donor conversations, the first, the first engagement, if we have a 30 minute or an hour long conversation, we'll probably spend 20% of that on our weaknesses. Yeah. Well, that's hard too, because I, I remember, I think it was in the news or um, I can't remember where I heard about it, but essentially a luxury handbag company had funded a project with Charity Water and there was some sort of metric tied to tied to that, that, that campaign or whatever. Then a civil war broke out in the DRC or somewhere. And so literally they couldn't fulfill, they did half of it or part of it. And then basically they all went yeah. debunked because there was like, there was a war. And I kid you not, the handbag company sued Charity Water for this. And it's like, that just reinforces people who don't want to be open and honest about the real issues of like the world and geopolitics in Africa. So I don't know, that one just like really upset me that a brand would go that far of like re- reinforce the negativity of somebody being open and honest and transparent with like mm. a model where it doesn't work. Um, it's part of our chase though, right? Like we have to get more and more donors in and the higher frequency or volume we have, the less likelihood we're actually engaging them as real partners mm. instead of as ATMs. Yeah. And so when it's the latter, it's very easy for someone to sue, say Cherry yeah. Water, whose absolute intent is solid and golden yeah. and whose deployment was probably really rigorous, but yeah. a natural calamity or a political yeah. one happened. And yeah. It, they, they had an ATM donor in that yeah. in that case, and they yeah. didn't have the luxury of actually building it into a real partnership. They're, you, they're fantastic at it now. How do you filter it for um, you for a Splash? The difference between an ATM and a donor, like a true partner. Like totally the people weird. that come in, you're like, you know, we pro, like it's tempting. You know, you're like, ooh, like I see the money, but I'm also like, oh, I also know that like they might not be the best partner. It's a really good question. Um, I mean, the Mirror staff here knew a lot of our crew. Mike and others, they're just they're incredibly disciplined about saying this this actually has this has blowback potential. Yeah. Um, versus this has real positive knock on effects if we yeah. partner with them. Yeah. Um, they're pretty critical about what the partnerships could look like and should look like and what we can demand on the front end in the negotiations against what we just have to concede to. Yeah. So it's a pretty solid team at pushing back against why this partner, this magnitude, yeah. how we thought about what this looks like down the line. Um, We just can't do that at scale, you know, across the board. I wish we could. Yeah. Um, Who have been some of your best partners as you've scaled? 
I mean, this, this single best partner we've ever had is George Russell. Um, I mean, he is our angel investor. And uh, while we wrote a 82-page business plan for him, um, by year three, we came in and said, if we're going to live to this business plan, we're actually going to collapse. Like, we can do it. We can, we can run it out. We can fulfill all the obligations, but we're going to be a pretty crummy organization if we do because we're just going to be about more things in the world rather than sustainable things. And so we went back to him by year three and said, and tried to renegotiate to get it unrestricted. And he basically said, you don't have to negotiate. Like I, I gave you as the leader in this organization with the vision, the money to run this thing out, um, but you don't have to follow a business plan. How do you write a business plan in, in 2009 that then holds true in 2016? That doesn't work. Yeah. So he was pretty phenomenal at being the first truly unrestricted donor we ever had of saying, wow. He gave us, it was a, it was an $11.5 million seed capital, really, to grow the organization, yeah. to test out the model, to start hiring the staff, um, start doing kind of rigorous due diligence on ourselves. And at one point in year three, he just said, make it unrestricted. If that's going to make you a better organization and have more impact, even if the numbers are lower, of course, do it by all means. And that's, I mean, that's a radical departure from yeah. multi-million dollar investments. Yeah, yeah. Was um, he one of your first investments in the nonprofit sector? Uh, no, he, he's he, by far the biggest, but, um, had he done it with other organizations before? Like he, done this? So he has a family foundation, yep. but we didn't fit within any of the four pillars of the foundation. Okay. And so he did this out of his, um, personal funding. Okay. And it was, if I have it correct, it was his biggest single philanthropic gift, um, out of his own pocket. Wow. And I'm positive I have this correct. It is his favorite, but <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. So, how, so I'm curious, like George, so George Russell, he was Northwest. a mentor for me early on. So how did you get connected with him? Uh, oddly enough, I, um, I was doing work in Sri Lanka after the tsunami in 05. And, um, um, and at the time I literally, my office, again, half the size of this room, uh, was in the shadow of the George Russell building in downtown Tacoma. So there's this 14-story building that I always am in the dark of because I can't see the sun past. <laughs> uh, and so he, I remember talking to him, and I'm looking out the window like, that George Russell? So I called up a couple of people that night, and they said, he's going to kill you. He's going to obliterate you. The guy's a bear. I mean, he's just known as a, a beast in the sector. Um, he couldn't have been more affable, more kind, more gentle, more nurturing, more supportive. Um, and I, I walked out of that first meeting with my first greater than $10,000 investment. Um, and then over the course of several years, ended up, um, asking him for 11 million. So you get, you get connected <laughs> to him from a donor, one of your first donors, such a cool story. And then 11.5, I mean, that's just like, how did, how did you, how are you like, I'm going to go in and just ask for like, re, uh, like I'm just going to send it moonshot or were you like, no, I think I'm pretty good. Like, had you had any follow up conversations or was you it know, kind of like an out there ask? He, he is a business icon in this, in yep. this area. I mean, I don't know how much you know about George Russell yep. uh, or Frank Russell Investments. Um, but when, when you ask anybody in this area about Russell, ev everybody on the investment side will know who he is. And he was solicited all the time for advice on that side of his work. Mm. His philanthropic side, no one ever came and said, what do you think about X? Like, what, how would you apply your business learnings and leanings into this kind of model? And so after my first ask, it was... Um, uh, it was $15,000. After my first ask, I went to see him a month later and, and the beginning of the meeting, he's like, okay, what do you need? I'm like, I just need your advice. Like, I, I made this decision with the money. I don't think it was the most prudent. This is what happened. This is what I'm thinking. What do you yeah. think? And he was really confused by it. <laughs> Came back a month later and then three months after that. And in each time, he's like, okay, what do you need now? I was like, nothing. 
I'll come back to ask for for support later, but I really need your support. I don't have like a, a mentor who actually has that business acumen. Mm-hmm. And so we got in this weird cadence where every third to sixth meeting, I would finally ask for something new because I had depleted the original funds. I'd show them what we had done with the money. Um, very transparent on where we <laughs> failed. And at one point he's like, okay, we got to stop this dance. You got to ask me for something big. I'm like, I will give me a year and I will. But right now this is what I need help with. I made this higher and I'd love your, your you know, attention to it. And really, what would you do? Yeah. Um, and then finally ended up going back um, in, in 2009. And at the beginning of the meeting, I'm like, this is my big ask. Just so you know, let's, let's set the table yeah. well. And I spent five minutes, you know, building it up. And he's like, make me ask. <laughs> and so like, I asked, last page. I asked like, and what? he said, of course. Now, how's the family? And I was like, oh, God. <laughs> um, say it again. And so I, I mean, this is kind of funny. I'm crying. His his personal assistant, who was a very dear friend of his, she's crying. And he starts kind of weeping. Oh, that's amazing. It was, it was incredible. Beautiful. It was incredible. And so we... We hugged it out, which I'm told he didn't do very often. Um, and then you are I, his favorite nonprofit. And then I followed yeah. him up every three to six months thereafter for the next four or five years, just saying, yeah. "Wow, really screwed up here." Or this is what we did yeah. that actually leveraged this additional capital that actually brought in this additional staff. That here's these kind of secondary effects that we didn't anticipate. Yeah. And we had a really cool, very cool relationship. So he wrote this book, um, "Success by 10. This is killer. You like this. So he wrote a book called Success by 10. Basically, how did I make a billion dollars? Yeah. And you would assume that anybody who's written that book, here are the 10 things that I did that were brilliant. Yeah. In all 10 examples, he points at someone else for having the great idea, someone else for for coming up with that that spark. And he just was fortunate enough to be there in that room and or able to muscle it through because of his networks. At no point did he ever say, this was my idea. I mean, that's phenomenal, right? A billionaire in this day and age, a billionaire writing a book that basically says, all these other people were brilliant. I just happened to be there. So surround yourself by brilliant people. Yeah, absolutely. And build out networks. And it's fun, at the end of the book, he he mentions Splash and us and me. Oh, that's fantastic. and he gave me the first signed copy of the book when it came out. So he's he's been been just a, a pathbreaker for me of being audacious and bold and hopefully mostly fearless, yeah. but really more than anything, trying to prize and pride the, the talent that you can bring into your organization and really isolating them as the moments of success, not yourself. Wow. Long-winded story, but... That's incredible. The guy's incredible. phenomenal, and he deserves way more, way more credit than he gets in the philanthropic sector. Wow, that's amazing. That and he so also... many people miss their opportunity to learn from him. Well, no, to unrestricted and to, like, just... I mean, you you built such a good uh, trust It's with them. the end of the year. This the last year of the gift. Wow. So 2018. Are you going back in for another meeting soon? <laughs> no, I, I'm going to go in and tell him all the amazing things that we've done with it. Yeah. And I'm going to go in and tell his family the same. And yeah. Nice. Phenomenal. Phenomenal. Like we we were so fortunate to meet at that time, but on the business side as well as the financial side. The financial side is obviously one of the reasons we're here. But yeah his smarts and his ability to really distill things so quickly. Wow. He was known for 15 minute board meetings. I mean, imagine a 15 minute board meeting. Standing board meetings, 15 minutes, if they were any longer, he'd walk out. (laughs) The dude was cyber efficient. efficient. I gotta get get to this guy. (laughs) Show me the 15 minute board meeting. (laughs) Brilliant man. And and, I mean, I'm sure you both had someone early on that was like your catalyst. Whether financial or just 
you know, in terms of the mentorship and leadership and business smarts. Yeah. yeah. But I think the key wins. piece for the relationship building is the transparency. That's what makes it authentic. And allows them to actually like lean in and give advice instead of like jockeying of like, oh, there's this guy who has a lot of money and I just need to like position so that he thinks we're really successful so that he funds it as opposed to being like, hey, I don't know what I'm doing in this sector. Like, can you poke holes in it? Our most successful funding partnerships are the ones where we've been so deeply honest about our failings. We have a really great funder right now. We worked for a year to get their funding. The moment before they were ready to sign, we actually had to call them and say, we need to decline the funding because we don't think we're in a position to actually take it and do the best job with it. And it, it hit them very hard in all the right ways, but I mean, it hit them very hard. Like, holy shit, like, I, yeah. they just declined. Yeah. <laughs> We've done all this due diligence. We've had all these people on the phone, they just declined. But when we came back a year later and said, okay, we're ready, it was just a different relationship. Mm. And the magnitude wow. of it has been really significant for us. They're one of our primary provocateurs in the sector. They're the ones who are out seeding our name with potential funders more than we even can. I mean, they're, they're nestled in the right realms of people we can't get access to. And they're the first ones out of the gate saying, you really should look at Splash. Wow. Even if you don't fund water, you should look at them. Like they're, they're a different model in the intro sector. That's incredible. And it's because of that yeah. honesty. Speaking of connections. blatant disregard for <laughs> traditional norms. Speaking of connections, how, I'm, I'm trying to remember how we, we actually got connected. It was, I think it was Nick, uh, our chief impact officer who was involved. That was, that was originally how, but we had met uh, from One Day's Wages years ago. Oh, Me and right. Peter Drury were on stage. Was that up on Capitol Hill? Yeah. At the... That was right next to our old office. Our I old office that. was right around the corner. That's right. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And then um, Laird Norton Family Foundation, uh, they were longtime supporters of ours for the same reason. We'd come into a board meeting and pitching them and like, you do not want to fund us for here, here, and here. Like if you really want to see success, we won't show it to you here, but we will show incremental gains. Mm. If you really want success, fund us over here. So they, they funded us for eight years. Okay. They're one of the first family foundations to fund me as a solo unit. Wow. And was Nick running the foundation when that happened? or was uh, that He was later? a part of. Okay. He was a part of. Yeah. There was a lot of changing yep. people at every meeting, so I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I don't know who ran it. Yeah. Well, I'm so glad we're connected now because it's, yeah. been, it's been amazing. And we just feel privileged to be a, a part of such I, the great work that you're doing. So when you mention, and I know you're not looking for any um, glad handing on it, but when you mentioned good partnerships, I mean, I would, I would isolate this as one. Like this is a business that's local that shares this kind of core strategic value. Hey, you guys have been phenomenal. You've, you've forced us to be very, very rigorous and disciplined in the way that we pitch, as well as the way that we report, as well as the oversight. But it's just been so collaborative, which is what, we, yeah. that's what we're all striving for, right? Partnerships, not yeah. one-off transactions. That doesn't do anybody any good. What would your encouragement be to other brands out there, social enterprises, people doing good in the marketplace that want to find a partner? What what could you point to like our partnership as like, this is a good way to do it? Because oftentimes people ask me, they're like, how do you find great partners? And we have some criteria, but like, I don't always know what we're doing well that like could be modeled throughout other organizations. I would say the number one that we've taken to other conversations. So say we've, we've even tried to take to Kimberly Clark, like yeah. some of the things that we've learned with Mir in particular is that flexibility that there, there has to be some kind of co-creation in this. If it's not, then it is, it still is, you know, zero cost recovery grant based philanthropy. Yeah. But, <laughs> but if there's co-creation, then you're actually talking about a shared goal, shared vision. And so I know that Mir was asking us for particular things that you'd like to see at a school, but we were also pushing back and saying, we'd like to see this in the relationship. Mm. And there was a, healthy tension about it right in the early stage of the negotiation of what you needed to see what we needed to see and from that 
one, we think our programs became stronger. Um, but then two, I think you've got something that your crew can rally around because people have heard the name Splash multiple yeah. times. And it's not just from you and Rebecca. Totally. I don't know. That's, that's what we've tried to take to other companies is you know, we've had this collaboration and co-creation with Mirror, and we'd really like to extend that to see what it might look like, yeah. which we didn't have before. That's not a pure answer. Like, no, no, you no. must do this yeah, and this, yeah. but it has to be a collaboration. And, yeah. and you have to envision it as a, a kind of shared strategy rather than you're just funding us to do more of what we do. Totally. And that helps. Or we're just giving piece. you something that's sellable. Yeah. If, that's, if that's the end of the, the, yeah. the discussion, then we both gained a little bit, but not a great And that was, I, I mean, f- being fully transparent, that was kind of us early on of just like having something to sell, like clean water for a year or whatever. And it became one of those things where it's like, well, that might be the average across all projects globally. But like, is that really the purpose, you know, of it? Is it somewhat to like unrestricted? Is it is it more about like telling people and our customers how much we're giving, where it's going, the GPS coordinate, you know, in that piece of it, as opposed to like this bottle gives one person clean water for a year every single time. Like yeah. to me, it's like customers want that, but it's almost like we pushed back and said, no, like we know that our customers want that, but instead we're going to like do this because it supports you in a much better way as opposed to being like, hey, did you have that, you know, dollar per yeah. person per year metric where it might be more or it might be less. But I walk in your office and I saw two different, uh, three different splash stickers. You walk in our office, you're gonna see mere backpacks. Not just, I mean, we, we everybody's yeah. rocking the bottles. Yeah. But like, there's staff who are coming here physically, financially buying yeah. backpacks because we're we're just trying to like promote the partnership in general. That's killer. Yeah. I just saw a new one. Leslie's wearing the, our our uh, manager of program sustainability. She's rocking a mere backpack. Yeah. Like out of nowhere, it's awesome. And it's, I <laughs> think cool. that's what the partnerships are supposed to be, right? Yeah, yeah. And I think that healthy tension is important with us and our customers and our nonprofit partners. And and even internally within our organization, we're trying to get better at like bubbling up that conflict because with that tension becomes, you get results, you get understanding. Hmm. Whereas sometimes I think people typically want to lean like, oh, tension, like I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna engage in that, right? It's like, so fun. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's I been a learning fun, opportunity. But... <laughs> but, but it is, in yeah, hindsight, yeah. it's fun. Yeah. No, no no, part of your business came from, you know, this well-greased chain. Like, yeah. Something collided and you totally. said, oh, man, you challenged yeah. your assumptions. Yeah. You got stronger because of it. Totally. What maybe, are you, maybe not all, all of it's fun, but yeah. in hindsight, it is. Right? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's growth. Yeah. It's growth. It's totally growing pains. Discipline. Yeah. yeah. Which we didn't have in the early years. I'm sure you didn't either. But yeah. it, it came from making mistakes and mm-hmm. people challenging you either externally or internally. Yeah. What do you think's been one of the the bit or not one but um, or multiple? But you'd certainly nail it to one. What's been the biggest challenge as far as being in the nonprofit sector, having this audacious audacious goal of 100% coverage in certain countries? Is there one thing? Are there multiple things? 100%'s tough. I mean, you think of Kolkata, that's 1,600 schools. It'll be half a million kids in the next five years. You think of um, Addis, 450 schools. It'll be 500,000 kids in five years. I mean, that, that's, those are big numbers for a small-ish NGO. Yeah. Um, achieving that is really complex. And so I think we have set ourselves up for a couple. Um, we've created this minefield. That if we don't achieve 100%, we haven't actually achieved our goal. Um, or if we're not doing it fast, then we're not achieving it at the rate mm-hmm. of scale that you need to just see the commensurate kind of health gains. Yeah. But 100% is tough. It's really tough. Yeah. Um, I, th- I think one of the biggest, I mean, again, if I'm going to be brutally candid, yeah. I think one of the biggest lessons is we have 
touted the local leadership and local success story for so long, and sometimes it's exploded in our face. Uh, we've had many issues uh, internationally, many growing pains of the Seattle office not entirely aligning with, say, the Nepal office, or we had one very egregious example in that same country uh, where we had been isolating this local leader. He's, he's amazing. Look at him. Look at what can happen if you can fund this kind of innovation and local leadership. Um, I found out that there was there was um, the beginning stages of significant, deep, and long-standing fraud happening. Uh, we created the conditions for that to happen. Mm-hmm. We certainly hadn't yeah. incentivized them to do so, but we created the conditions by building out this mythology of look what can happen if you can just focus on local. And so in the last two years, and again, I'm not being entirely articulate, but in the last two years especially, we've we've tried to focus on this matrix leadership where we're trying to build out a kind of uh, horizontal version of leadership rather than this hierarchy yeah. of this vertical one. Um, that was terribly inarticulate. <laughs> Fuck. Uh, no, that was, a, no, that was no, vertical, no, no. horizontal, we got it. No, We're no, there. but I mean, the, the key is we have stressed, and we again, we built out this mythology of local leadership to the detriment of saying that this is actually a collaborative leadership, that Seattle mm. plays a role, Ethiopia plays a role. Ethiopia plays a role in India, and he plays a role in Nepal, and Nepal and China, and we're just now getting that. We're just now understanding that it's this constellation of actors, all strategically aligned, um, towards the same end goal rather than, I don't know, localizing it and building out boundaries of this single unit in Nepal or in Cambodia or in China. Um, and it's, it took us a long time to learn that. We made so many mistakes by saying it all has to be local. Mm-hmm. And in doing so, we just, we, we really created the conditions for some some bad outcomes. Interesting. If that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's um, Nepal killed us Nepal two years ago? Well. So I still got a little bit of a bitter taste about <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> about how that program unpacked, and I'm so excited about where it's at now. Where it's back functioning at such a high level, and the staff are so insanely incredible. Wow, it, it left a really bad oh, taste. I'm sure you've had a moment here where it was like, oh shit, I yeah. cannot believe we made that decision. We let that happen. Too many um, to count. <laughs> well, yes, but, but in hindsight, whenever, I mean, if yeah, you yeah. ever ask, like, what was a major moment, that was the most pivotal moment. It was so existential. Mm-hmm. Like, that was a moment when the organization could have veered completely off the rails. Yeah. And we're much stronger because of it. Yeah, but, but you didn't. Wow, you know, it, was yeah. a, it was a learning moment about how to, how to make this a global office rather than mm-hmm. these single unit chunks. Totally. What does the future of clean water look like? And the, future, and the future is flash. <laughs> Man, you went right to it. Yeah, I, thank you. Keep me concise. That last, that last answer was ridiculous. Um, I mean, we would love to, in, in the places we work, we would love to have created the last generation of kids who get sick because of unsafe water. And I, I mean that so sincerely, that in Kolkata, in Addis, in Kathmandu, we would love to know that these kids' kids don't get sick because of safe or unsafe water. Um, what does the future of water look like? It's, it's communities can depend on affordably safe water, which is mm-hmm. not something that exists in most of these economies. Um, and in the places we've worked, it exists because we've, we've, we've leveraged local supply chains. We've helped incentivize and create new markets. We've, we've really proven that you can do it cost effectively and sustainably and that the government plays a role. Um, community has to support kids have to adopt the behaviors. I mean, there's just this entire ecosystem that has to happen. But 
the future of water to us, at least in the places we work. Kids are no longer getting sick because of unsafe water. Their kids will not get sick because they've adhered to the things that we've helped create. They've adopted the things that we've created. And the market actually supports the poorest communities in a way that they currently don't, but that we're striving to get them to. So long-winded way of that saying. That was very articulate. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Kids don't get sick anymore. <laughs> so and the poorest especially, which it's just it's unbelievable how prevalent that is. Yeah. It's unbelievable how prevalent that is. So speaking of kids... With our partnership, I think, you know, we've been talking about your work overall, start, how you got there, George Russell, all these incredible things. Some people are like, what do you actually do on the ground? What do we do? <laughs> what do we do in Otis? Because I think that was one of the coolest parts is like, sure. we got, we get to work with Blue Bottle Coffee on this specific project yeah. in Addis, where Charlie, their coffee, um, coffee sourcing manager, um, or head of coffee sourcing, has been there. He's physically seen it, which is cool. so cool to see. Um, and he's written about it on their blog, so it's cool to see full I circle. Didn't that, see like, that. Yeah, you gotta check it out. It's on their, oh, yeah, it's well, on their blog. We'll send I think it to they you. came a week after I was last there. So. Yeah, yeah. So, so we feel so privileged that we get to work with them. But for people listening in, like, what does that actually look like on the ground when Blue Bottle and Mirror make a beautiful drinkware camp cup bottle yeah, and sure. sell it, um, and then we help provide funds to you? What what goes on at Addis? Sure. So in a place like Addis, um, there's 450 public schools. And right now there's 450,000 kids in those schools. So these are big schools. Wow. Um, not enough teachers per student. Certainly not enough toilets per student. Definitely not enough water per student. Uh, on and on. Um, we go into a place that has, I think when we did the survey, I want to say less than 30% of schools actually had a functioning tap. I'll get back with those numbers. Yeah. Uh, only 6% of schools even had soap. Uh, the majority of toilets, it was like one toilet for every 200 kids. Um, the absence of doors, gender segregation, no lighting, no ventilation, um, nowhere to kids for kids to clean their hands, nowhere for girls to deal with menstrual hygiene management, on and on. Like there's just a, on one end, a complete lack of infrastructure for safe water, for washing hands, and for toilets. And on the other, there's a there's a lack of software built into the system. By that I mean, there's really no groups to talk about hygiene and hand washing. There's no training or mm. curriculum around the same. Um, there's no groups around menstrual hygiene management. There's there's no um, there's no built-in mechanism for cleaning of the toilets. It's just it's a whole cascading um, of hardware and software. So we make sure that the water that is on site is the appropriate volume. So making sure that kids have enough liters per day to drink. We make sure that that water is bottle quality. We make sure that it's flowing at all the right times. Uh, we make sure that kids have a place to wash their hands, that there's soap always available to do so, that water is flowing to do so, that they that toilets are child and girl friendly, which is a very yeah. difficult to do, far harder than you might imagine. Um, and that all those things are wrapped up in uh, administration support. So the teachers being trained, the administration actually enforcing good behaviors around hand washing and toilet cleanliness. Uh, that kids groups are being uh, built and trained so they can go out and enforce and marshal other kids to do the same. Uh, that the government is um, incentivized to co-fund on the front end for the capital costs, but then more importantly, to actually support these things financially on the operational side. Uh, and that hopefully through all of our work, we're creating a, a new reality for these 450 schools that then becomes the model for secondary cities throughout Ethiopia. So it's not just Addis. So every school we do together in Addis is not just isolated to that city. We're hoping to build out the model that the government then can fund at scale in secondary cities. So that this becomes a national platform rather than a single city event. 
And then beyond that, that these are all, you know, these are incredible local Ethiopian staff who are doing work in Ethiopia. So I get it's a little counter to my last statement around highlighting local, but I'm really so proud that the number of expats that, staff, that Splash has working for us is, it's right now it's nil. We'll probably be up to one or two in the next few years, but this is really about local Ethiopian staff being trained, pro us providing them the professional development and tools that they can create that local office that can do this stuff at scale. And that's that's incredibly uncommon. So 100% coverage, safe water, clean hands, clean toilets, um, replicability and government funding that at scale and the local office actually spinning off and overseeing it. So yeah. beyond that one school, yeah. there's a lot more. <laughs> totally. There's a lot more to unpack. And it's all transparent, right? You can actually go to your website Salesforce or Tableau? Back uh, both. both. So Salesforce is the back end, Tableau is the front end, yep. and we're looking at trying to engage Tableau. We're actually in discussions with them right now to do a much deeper dive on the data visualization yeah. so that governments and donors and our own staff can actually start to see this stuff uh, in real time and start real to collate and wow. cross-reverence, like, what is this intersection? When you have a, a school with good menstrual management, a girls' club, and this, what does that mean? Why is that school outperforming the other ones? So we're going to start looking at trends in the data much, much more differently, much more deeply. That's incredible. Will you talk for a second? I can't remember if it was Cindy or Laura who told me that at some point in the behavior change yeah. sort of category of yeah. the whole wash intervention, you all discovered that by hanging mirrors so cool. over the hand washing so cool. stations, that that, so I mean, cool. exponentially increased kids you know, desire to, so I'll give you and the, behavior to I, actually I wash their hands. I promise I'll try and do this quickly. Uh, <laughs> so we, we segregate hand washing and drinking, which I think is really important. Oftentimes you go to a school and you'll see kids drinking out of their hands, out of a hand washing state. I mean, it's, it's not what you want to see. So we have color coded activities. Blue is for water, orange is for hand washing. Um, and those stations aren't even near each other. We put the water uh, in the area of highest traffic and we put the hand washing closest to the toilets. So there already is a, a subtle nudge. The color coding is a subtle nudge. Um, the basin in the hand washing station is too shallow for you to reach your head in. So we're, mm. we're restricting behavior. Um, we put the bubbler on the right side of the drinking station because kids traditionally in, in most developing countries wipe with their left hand without toilet paper. So they won't drink out of their left hand. So we're restricting behavior. All those things combined seem to get us to about 40% usage, which is much higher than before splash intervention. But the biggest change we've seen is by inclusion of a simple three to five dollar mirror. So we did this killer study where um, we had a remote camera, too far to see an individual kid, but far enough to see, or close enough to see whether it was a boy or girl exiting a, a toilet. Um, and we had researchers every day counting. I mean, we're talking in the tens of thousands of kids, counting how many kids came out of the, the toilet, walked past a perfectly usable hand washing station all the way around to one with a mirror. And what we saw over time is that it increased to 60, 65% usage rates just by including that mirror. And they held pretty steady. Um, we're seeing that as well in, in schools right now in Ethiopia, uh, in India, and in Nepal. So kids are vain. They love to see themselves <laughs> and leverage, leverage the environment to subconsciously trigger activities from these kids. That's, that's the kind of space that Splash is in now. We're thinking far more about behavioral economics and science than we are about water quality. That stuff is somewhat easy. The behavioral yeah. side is insanely difficult. Yeah. I love that. And the nuances with color too. I love that. If we color code our materials to orange, there's another subtle cue. We've got 
two hand our hands on the hand washing station. The other subtle cue. I mean, we're just trying to make mm. we're trying to create a gravitational orbit around the hand washing station that if we get kids close enough, they'll use it. But if if they pass by within a 10, 20 foot radius, they're probably not going to. So how can we get them closer? Wow. Mirrors. Mirrors. That was like the, there's a classic business case scenario. I can't remember who did it or if it was real or fictitious, but there was elevators in this office building and it mm. took forever to get up and down or, or there was one. And so the business is like, we got to increase the frequency of this elevator. So they're going to spend all this money on redoing the elevator and putting a new, new elevator in. And uh, these consultants come in and they, they, they basically, the recommendation is like a hundred dollar mirror in front of the elevators because all the tenants were complaining. And so they put they installed this mirror then all of a sudden all the complaints went away because as soon as there's a mirror, all the people waiting for the elevator just went in front of the mirror and checked themselves out and oh my all, gosh. Sudden all the complaints went away. So it was like this different way of thinking about how do you solve problems. We're all, problems. Vain, We're all super vain. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the last funny component of that is the biggest increase in users was boys. And this was at a, um, the beginning of at the equivalent of a middle school. That prepubescent yeah. mustache was oh, starting. Yeah. <laughs> but what we saw is they were washing their hands and also washing their face yes. and combing their hair. It was a whole thing. But uh, yeah, you can see an increase in users by doing these subtle tricks in, in, in the environment. Yeah. And that's that's what Splash is more interested in now. Because the other stuff has, it's not entirely rote, but it's becoming mm, yeah. codified enough where now yeah. it's about increasing users rather than yeah. the uniform application quality. Yeah. Um, what do you what what gives you hope for the future? There's a lot of need out there. There's a lot of issues, a lot of complexity in solving simple problems. <laughs> what gives what gives you hope? I, I mean, to be super corny, my kids. Yeah. Um, they're daily reminders of how amazing this world really is. And although we, I mean, we work in a really dark sector. When you unpack what Splash does and who we work for, it's a very very dark component of society like it's it these are folks these are kids who are living really tough lives whose parents are just eking out an existence and working tirelessly to do so um but man my kids and and their ability to laugh how quickly they do so and the kids we work with and for that same component like being on the grounds of a school even in an orphanage even in a hospital how quickly kids can be resilient and and just engage and play and laughter and fun that's why we called it splash it was this this verb this noun this action this this play not this desperate condition not this poverty porn not it's about yeah. potential about play about positivity um and my kids daily remind me of it wow. you know i'll throw in one more piece i'm really really struck by this um last year in april i saw i met and saw and kind of stalked malala She's at this conference, and I'm, I'm just fascinated with how what her relationship is with her dad and how how she's such a public persona, and does she have any privacy? And I'm watching as she's meeting with, there's Jimmy Carter, and there's Al Gore, and then she's, I think she was just about to win the Nobel Peace Prize. But there's all these components where she's just, she's just tireless. She's just out there every day in front of new audiences trying to, to get support for education and girls. When does she have a moment to be a kid? Fast forward a year later, um, and I'm in this coffee shop, and she's there with a bunch of her friends. And she was the goofy protagonist, like just edging people on, and everybody was in hysterics. She wasn't caring about anything, and just, there was this moment where she was just a kid that was so killer and so cool and so meaningful to know that even though she is 
she's such a revered figure. I mean, yeah. she's she's saintly. Um, at least that's how all of us perceive her. But to know that she also has this other part of her life, that she has this play, and it's not all serious, and it's not all despondent. I, man, I I just I think about that almost daily now. Like, just incorporating that in our lives, making yeah. sure we have that kind of time, that that type of community, that, that level of laughter and engagement, and just. Yeah. goofiness like yeah. splash is a really goofy company yeah yeah uh, and that was a great reminder for me yeah um, nothing's too big for me, the servant leader and nothing's too small for man, the servant that gave leader. me a lot of hope i was so sad about where she was at a year ago just thinking that's must that must be such a weight yeah and just to see her like they were really goofing she on each other up. very hard just to watch that was oh my heart was just singing watching her be a kid yeah. Based on your last answer, I'm guessing this might fall in the same light, but I'm always curious with other entrepreneurs who just give, give, give. How do you how do you replenish joy in your life when you can't work in a dark sector and it's exhausting and it can be and you travel a lot and there can be these tiring things, but what what kind of replenishes? Super corny answer as well, my yeah. family. Yeah. Uh, when I'm home, I'm home. I don't I don't do galas, I'm not out engaging in community as much as I should. I really should be more. I'm when I'm home, I'm home. If I'm not traveling, I'm home. So the second I'm off work, I'm racing home to take my daughter to jujitsu, my son to soccer. Um, yeah, every, everything you can imagine. I'm, awesome. I'm present. That's awesome. And it is incredibly rejuvenating. That's cool. Yeah. So we have a word at Mir that we've, I think we've invented. Um, it's called Empowerful. And uh, we constantly ask people on the show and people that we work with, like, how mm-hmm. do you, how would you define Empowerful? And, and it's basically the, the combination of empower or empowerment mm. and then words that end with full beautiful uh, plentiful mm. um, how would you define empowerful in your own life mm. that's really tough <laughs> making, you, making you define a made up word <laughs> no, no it's a beautiful combination I don't know I I think I might have mentioned it earlier, but like this, just the idea of community, like what a real community would be in this sector. Um, it's that constellation of disparate actors all veering towards a shared goal. Um, so that's Mir, that's government, that's the schools we work with, that's the students we work for, that's their parents at home. Like it's, it's a totally disparate, disconnected community at large, but it's this constellation approach that we are cohesive. There's duct tape in there somewhere. Uh, and we are all striving for the same things. Their kids, the kids we support to be healthy yeah. um, and to thrive. And there's there's this, I don't know, there's this incredible architecture in there that I can't quite decipher yet. But that to me is like, that's empowerment and it's beautiful. I just, I, I can't quite see all the linkages yet. I know it's out there. I know we're striving for it and we see it more and more every day, but like, we don't do this work without me or we don't do this work without government. Government can't do it without us. And I don't know, there's this cohesion that to me is just so beautiful and I, I wish we could articulate that system structure better. Yeah. I hope that we're more fluent in it or at least more conversant in it yeah. in the coming years. But I think without that, these projects ultimately kind of fall apart. But with yeah. it, it's incredibly beautiful. Yeah. We're all sharing that same long range vision, even if it looks radically different from different perspectives. So. Right on. Well said. Yeah. That's my powerful. I, I really it. like that, so we're stealing it just so. Yeah, cool. Yeah, go for it. We um, what's cool is mir in Eastern European languages means world or peace, mm. and so like while we set off and we were doing things around the world, like it just it continues to just mm. be present in the brand that we're working all over the world domestically, locally. We have suppliers, we have nonprofit partners, we have customers, we have employees. Like mm. there's this 
this world that is um, we're all we're all a part of, and we don't all touch each other in every aspect, but we're all kind of in this together. Hmm. Yeah, I love the idea of a constellation. Yeah, because it sticks together, right? It's not these unified stars that just kind of move out. Like it's it's stuck, mm-hmm. yeah. and it makes this this cooler whole yeah. than the individual parts, but mm-hmm. can't necessarily see the linkage of. Yeah, I don't know. That's the really only cool. one we'll I can ever one. identify yeah. is the Big Dipper. That's the only one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, true. I can only name like three, but but there's cohesion there. Yeah. Again, even if it's duct tape. Cool. Great. Right well, thank you. Yeah, thanks for that was, that was amazing. Yeah. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you on the next episode.